Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Today's episode is the second installment of my new series, UN Correspondent Chat, in which, as the name suggests, I have a wide-ranging conversation with an in-house reporter at the United Nations headquarters about what's buzzing in Turtle Bay. And on the line today is Carol Landry, who is a veteran UN correspondent with the AFP Agence France Presse. We float between topics that's been driving the conversation at the UN in recent weeks, including how Brexit will impact diplomacy at the UN, some of the latest geopolitical intrigue from the Security Council, the ongoing Commission on the Status of Women Conference, and how the Secretary General has lived up to his pledge to have greater gender parity among senior staff at the UN. Those are just a few of the topics we cover in this conversation. And if you appreciate this new series, please let me know. My intention is to take the pulse of the UN every few weeks by having a loose yet informed conversation with someone who covers the UN day in, day out, to give you a little bit of a flavor of what's happening at the UN, and also some background into some of the events and ideas that's driving diplomacy at the UN in the current moment. As always, you can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. Let me know. Oh, also, I got a new uh, order of stickers of Global Dispatches podcast stickers. If you'd like me to send you one, if you're a a regular and loyal listener and want to show it off, let me know. Just uh, send me an email and I'll put one in the mail and send it to you. Happy to do so. All right. Now, here is my conversation with Carol Landry of AFP. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So we were meant to speak yesterday, but you had to file a sudden report on India-Pakistan. What did you write about? What's what's happening? Well, um, what happened is that France, Britain, and the United States went to a sanctions committee on al-Qaeda and uh, the Islamic State at the UN and asked that a... Pakistan-based group, Jaish-e-Mohammed, which is actually the group that claimed responsibility for that terrible attack in Kashmir last month that killed 40 Indian troops, they wanted to blacklist the leader of uh, JEM, as it's known. Now, uh, China blocked it. Well, actually, China asked for uh, a hold, which in UN parlance means it wants more time to look at it. 
Um, it's like a bureaucratic maneuver that would delay the impl- the implementation of these individual targeted sanctions, right? Well, it is bureaucratic, but by the same token, it is a step by chi- uh, by China to 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 prevent this from happening, to prevent the leader of Jam to be put on this uh, global terrorism list. So um, the Americans, the French, and the British clearly are unhappy because this is the fourth time that the that the Security Council has looked at blacklisting um, Masoud Azhar. And so uh, the, the, there's some discussion about trying to get around the Chinese by actually going to the Security Council with a resolution that would designate a czar as a terrorist. Now, of course, the Chinese had a veto at the Security Council, so they could block it there. But it, it's just uh, one of those issues that we're watching here because there's some geopolitics at play. Yeah. The yeah. Chinese are clearly helping Pakistan. Uh, on this issue, and India has turned to the U.S. and France and Britain to try to advance its um, priorities when it comes to Kashmir. So we're watching that one. Yeah, it's it's sort of an interesting distillation of the geopolitics of this issue when you have um, China carrying Pakistan's water at like a sanctions committee level, uh, and India, you know, looking to the U.S. to 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 get their back. It's always interesting to see how these like very specific and discrete. Examples um, like this one, the, the whether or not to designate the leader of JEM as a uh, terrorist worthy of sanctions, sort of, you know, reflect broader geopolitical uh, issues at play. Yes, absolutely, because it's about influence, you know, about being able to um, help out uh, countries as a big power at the UN. China, the U.S., France, Britain, Russia, they all do it. Um, But uh, here's a concrete example of how it's being played out. So we are speaking in the midst of Brexit mayhem, uh, which is, you know, I suppose you could say the last like two years have been Brexit mayhem, but things seem to be coming to a head with these subsequent votes in um, in, in Parliament. No one really knows where this is going, but I, I'm sort of curious to learn how like Brexit is being interpreted, is being played out, is influencing individuals and, and is sort of... Um, being interpreted in the building right now at the UN. What are people talking about Brexit? Well, you know, Mark, clearly March 29th um, is going to be or is shaping up to be a political earthquake in Europe, and you can't really underestimate the, the ripple effects at the UN here. Now, the British diplomats, when you ask them what will be the impact of Brexit on their work here, their answer is that the UN is going to become even more important to Britain because it will be the main international venue. It will be the main um, showcase for British global power. And there's been a lot of messaging around this. Now, you know, Britain has a veto at the Security Council. It's a big, big aid donor. And that won't change on March 29th. But there are a lot of questions around Brexit. Um, people are, diplomats are wondering to what extent the UK will be able to uh, drive uh, certain agendas um, at the at the United Nations when at home Brexit is going to be basically uh, the, the government is going to be consumed by Brexit. Brexit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Britain is a pen holder, uh, which means it's the lead negotiator at the Security Council on a number of key issues like Yemen, Myanmar, Libya, Somalia, Colombia. So diplomats are wondering, you know, how active they can be on all of these files uh, with Brexit um, taking up so much space uh, with the government. Now, um, for instance, I've, I've heard some diplomats say, and it's quite interesting, to what extent, ask the question, to what extent uh, Britain will be able to challenge China, for instance, or criticize China at the Security Council, if you, if you consider how important China will be to London after Brexit. Mm. So some, those are some of the disruption, the questions that are, that are being asked, and clearly, uh, People are saying that they're not expecting a lot of disruption, but they're watching for some shifts mm. after so, Brexit. So, so it's interesting, you know, that you know, domestic political upheaval in the UK might complicate or disrupt their ability to advance issues on on Yemen or, or you know do their proper you know due diligence as as penholder on on issues like Yemen. I, you know, is there also going to be a shift in like negotiating blocks at the UN? You know, the EU sometimes, you know, advocates as a single voice on some key issues at the UN. Is there going to be like a new block that's like the EU plus UK? Well, I mean, clearly they're not going to be part of the EU anymore, so they're not part of that block. And that block, uh, the European Union, can mobilize a lot of action at the UN. I mean, they, they mobilize votes at the General Assembly. Um, they get positions aligned, as you mentioned. So they're not going to be part of that block. But having said that, uh, I think there's an understanding that the UK will often be aligned with the EU position simply because often the EU position is their position or they can be associated with the EU or they can just support it. So is there going to be a full-on break with all of EU foreign policy? I don't think so, but um, they are not part of the EU. They will not be part of the EU and that's going to change some of the uh, dynamics. Yes. I also have to imagine that, like, the individual diplomats from the UK mission are all, you know, probably pro-Europe and, and are, are you know, see the advantage in remaining in the EU. Yet, you know, as civil servants, they're sort of expected to, you know, carry out whatever policy is given to them from on high. And, and there, I just have to imagine there's, like, a lot of grumbling among the diplomatic staff right now. Well, I'm not sure I can confirm the grumbling. I think that, you know, as you mentioned, this has been going on for a while, and um, you have a lot of top-notch diplomats at the British mission who understand that this is a reality and you need to deal with it. So uh, they're um, very... Um, adamant about continuing to show that Britain is an important power at the United Nations. It is an important power at the United Nations. It has a veto. It's a big aid donor. That won't change on March 29th. And I think that the, 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 what we're hearing from the British mission is that they will be even more determined to show that Britain has not uh, been diminished at all by Brexit.
Hmm. Okay. So, so that's interesting. So, so we'll, we'll, we'll have to see where things stand after, uh, March 29th, which is the, the day of, of Brexit, uh, so far, at least, unless they somehow get an extension or delay. You never know where these things will shake out. Yeah, we'll see. So, uh, ongoing at the UN, it, it, it launched this week is the, this year's Commission on the Status of Women. Um, this is an annual gathering that, uh, you know, is, is meant to, Update and inform and reflect, um, you know, the UN and the whole international systems. There's a, there's a big sort of civil society component as well um, on you know gender equality, women's rights, reproductive health, and all all sorts of um, associated issues and ideas. Um, this is not sort of happening under the auspices of the Security Council. Obviously, it's happening in other parts of, of the UN. What can you tell me about um, how you know CSW, an annual event, a big event, sort of shapes things inside the building? Well, Mark, as you know, CSW is the largest gathering at the UN after the General Assembly high-level debate in September. So it's a major, major event on the UN calendar. There's about 9,000 um, delegates from civil society that come to New York to discuss the wide, wide range of issues um, on the uh, pertaining to gender equality. Now, I wanted to touch with you, Mark, the issue of just gender equality at the UN, which has been an interesting, uh, there, there has been an interesting development on that front. I, so I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. What percentage of senior positions at the UN were held by women when Antonio Guterres became uh, Secretary General in 2017? Take a guess. Okay, what okay. percentage? So I know the current percentage. Uh, I don't know the previous guest percentage. So the previous percentage before Antonio Guterres, who came into office pledging full gender equality at senior management positions before he came, I'm going to say like 20, 20%? 25%. 25%. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, And now I'll I'll let you uh, hit the punchline. What, What is it now? Well, they say, Antonio Guterres says that they have reached gender parity. Uh, among senior management at the UN. Now, things are changing. Um, I remember, I've been at the UN for almost five years now, and I remember standing at the press stakeout, you know, which is that area just outside of the Security Council chamber, and watching, you know, a special envoy go into the Security Council chamber with a team of advisors. So you're, you know, a special envoy for for conflict, you know, for uh, either conflict X. And you'd see the envoy walk in with a team of advisors or six or seven people, and they were all men. So you couldn't help but ask yourself the question that, what what is wrong with this picture? You know, uh, the entire senior team in charge of peacemaking efforts for the UN in a given country are all men. So that has changed tremendously. Um, I mean, there's been some really important appointments at the UN over the last uh, year, um, starting with Rosemary DiCarlo, who's the head of political affairs. Now yeah, she's former she's American considered diplomat. Like, yeah, like this. She, exactly. Yeah. She's like the Secretary of State, right, of of the UN. Yeah, Yeah. she's the UN's foreign minister, exactly. Major, uh, of major importance, this position. Now, the number two at the UN after Antonio Guterres is Amina Mohammed. Mm -hmm. She's, uh, she's driving the development agenda at the UN, which, 
you know, involves lots of donor money and setting priorities for development with the sustainable development goals. Yeah, she's been on the podcast before. She's a powerhouse. Um, I I remember I interviewed her just sort of deep in the process of setting up the sustainable development goals. And, you know, if if there is one individual that's sort of most responsible for the SDGs, it might be her just as from her perch as the individual who was like in charge of like steering the process and the UN process dictates outcomes often. And she was like the the general in charge of that. Um, And yeah, so she's deputy secretary, but she was the second female deputy secretary after Asha Rose Maguiro, uh, who served in Ban Ki-moon's first term. But but these two women who are there now, Rosemary DiCarlo, I mean, very high profile. Mm -hmm. Um, So Antonio Guterres likes to say that he's a proud feminist, but I think... um, he he clearly understands the value of having women on board on all these issues. But um, you do have to go back to the race in 2016 for the next secretary general to, to, to point out that there was some disappointment that um, a woman was not chosen to be secretary general. There's been, there's, there's been uh, nine I mean, Gutierrez became the ninth secretary general. There's so now there's been nine men in that position, and uh, when during that campaign, I think that Gutierrez uh, was sensitive to the fact that there was this disappointment that a woman was not chosen to be secretary general, and um, he acknowledged that and and uh, pledged to to make progress on gender equality. Um, so there was a, being the good politician that he is, he did make that, uh, that pledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also makes sense for, for so many reasons because it's 2019 to have more women on board. So, so let me ask you this then. Um, so for the first time now we have full gender parity at senior management at the United Nations. Could you identify any distinct outcomes, whether it's, you know, policy or just sort of a different um, approach to process or, or other, um, uh, other implications of the fact that there are now, you know, half female senior management leadership as before? Like, uh, like what could you identify as resulting from that fact? Well, on the issue of, of conflict resolution, there's a lot more discussion about including women in uh, negotiations, in peace talks. Um, there are many studies that have shown that if you have women at the table in peace negotiations, that these deals, that these agreements that are reached to end wars or more durable, more sustainable. So um, on Syria, on Yemen, on, in many areas, there's a push to have more women. Now, uh, you know, again, we, we don't see, I haven't seen women in, in, in leading positions when it comes to peace negotiations, but there is um, a sensitivity to that aspect. Um, also on issues of sexual violence in conflict, that is being discussed much more broadly now. In South Sudan, um, it's outrageous what is going on. In a lot of the reports that are coming out of the Secretariat um, and out of the, the panel, panel of experts for various uh, conflict situations, you will have descriptions of um, mass rape going on in villages. Um, these are issues that are, are, are much more uh, are brought to the forefront. Mm. 
So whereas there is a gender parity, senior management, and like the UN civil servant staff, you know, inside the Security Council chamber where countries are, are represented by their, their diplomats, there is nothing close to, to approaching gender parity. I think of the P5, there's only one, uh, Karen Pierce of the UK, who is a, a, a woman, though that may change should uh, Donald Trump's pick for the next US ambassador to the UN, Kelly Kraft, who formerly served as U.S. ambassador to Canada, should she actually get formally nominated and then get confirmed. So I wanted to use that to segue uh, into a brief conversation about, you know, what what's the buzz is uh, around the U.N. Uh, about her, about Kelly Kraft uh, as the U.S. ambassador. Well, um, she's a bit of an unknown quantity because uh, she's not a career diplomat. Um, she uh, was posted in Canada and uh, took part in the renegotiations of the NAFTA deal and apparently um, handled that very well. Um, so there's a bit of a question mark uh, about what she'll be doing in her new uh, capacity as ambassador. Now, um, with her nomination, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that her husband is involved in the coal industry, that he made a fortune in that area. And coal, of course, links up to the whole issue of climate change. Climate change is a huge issue at the UN. Uh, Secretary General Guterres is going to be holding a summit in September to follow up on the Paris Agreement. And we know that the U.S. Is, is, has backed out of well, has announced that it wants to back out of the uh, Paris Agreement on climate change. So um, all of these factors are going to come together. It'll be interesting to see how she navigates that one. Yeah, so so it's funny you mentioned she's an, an unknown, uh, sort of relatively unknown. I, I don't know so much about her. I'm trying to do like a, a podcast episode around her interviewing a Canadian journalist who uh, sort of watched her and, and sort of knows her a bit more through her uh, role as U.S. Ambassador to Canada and, you know, what that that might suggest about how she would approach uh, issues at the UN, but I'm having such a hard time getting in touch with a Canadian journalist because of this upheaval in in Ottawa right now with Trudeau and, and the uh, their sort of their own sort of domestic political scandal. I had it like we, we were all lined up to talk, and then it's just sort of crickets from every Canadian mm. political <laughs> journalist so far. They're totally consumed with uh, the SNC Lavalin scandal that's that's going on. Um, so. Meanwhile, at the Security Council, do you want to talk about North Korea a little bit? Yes. Well, today, uh, Mark, Stephen Began, who's the U.S. Special Envoy on North Korea, is meeting uh, privately with Security Council ambassadors to talk about the Hanoi Summit. Mm -hmm. And um, it's interesting that, uh, you know, he's taken the time to meet with the Security Council. It's a reminder that the Security Council and uh, the sanctions that were uh, adopted, uh, imposed on North Korea are just vital to the U.S. policy on North Korea. Yeah, um, they're, they're like what gives teeth to, you know, this U.S. policy is are these international sanctions, not just bilateral U.S. sanctions, but this you know, entire, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's really tightened the noose around uh, Kim Jong-un. The U.S. and the Europeans could not do do it alone. They need China and Russia and, by extension, Asian neighbors on board to keep the pressure 
on Kim Jong-un to uh, give up his weapons programs. So um, there will be this this meeting informally where uh, probably, uh, again, the United States is going to make the case for keeping tough sanctions in place um, against North Korea and to to keep up the pressure. And meanwhile, you know, Steve Bygan, the, the U.S. North Korean negotiator, you know, his appearance at the Security Council comes not long after uh, the Security Council sort of panel of experts on North Korea sanctions issued its report detailing the sorts of shenanigans and the hoops and uh, other um, machinations that the North Korean regime does to sort of evade these sanctions, right? Yes, well, on uh, this week, the, the, the report by the panel of experts who are the sanctions monitors, there are people who just do very um, intensive research on, on how North Korea is evading sanctions and who's helping them um, issued its report. Now, it's 390 pages. It's online. It's very detailed. Uh, it goes from, you know, weapons sales or attempts to sell weapons, attempts to acquire technology, uh, how to, to circumvent um, bans on, on exports of commodities, how they're buying oil through offshore ship-to-ship transfers. It's quite extensive. Um, there's also even a section on the luxury cars that Kim Jong-un has purchased, um, including a, a Rolls-Royce that was recently um, that recently appeared when Secretary of State Mike Pompeo went to Pyongyang. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, there's a ban uh, under UN Security Council resolutions on sales of luxury goods to North Korea. So um, clearly they're able to uh, punch holes in all of these sanction um, restrictions. The, 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 the North Koreans have been quite adept. In general, I should say those panel of expert reports on North Korea and on other issues are some of, I think, like the best ways to understand and interpret sort of sanctions and conflicts around the world. They're some of the best like products that the UN system as a whole, I think, puts out to the public. Well, it's definitely very interesting. It's a very good read. Um, I mean, there are names in there. There are people who are identified. There are countries who are identified. Um, Shell companies and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some countries will take issue with the report saying denying or or saying that, you know, what is detailed in the report they take issue with. And, And of course, there are responses. All of that is in the report. But uh, it is uh, a treasure trove of information on how sanctions are working or not working on North Korea. Uh, well, Carol, um, you know we're, we're about out of time. It is uh, we're speaking on on Thursday. You file so frequently, almost every day. What do you think your your next story will be? Well, I'm definitely going to be watching uh, this North Korea meeting um, today um, and see, you know, what might come out of that, what the Americans are, are telling the rest of the Security Council after the Hanoi summit, which was, uh, as we all know, um, um, inconclusive, um, and what the next steps might be on North Korea, because um it's not clear how to convince Pyongyang to give up its weapons programs. What needs to happen now? All right. Well, well, thank you so much for your time.
Thank you for having me, Mark. This was great. I, I love these conversations. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Carol. That was great. Uh, and yeah, as I said, let me know if you like this series. Um, uh, as I said, my intention is to do these every few weeks, probably a little less than once per month, maybe every six weeks or so to, again, kind of take the pulse uh, at the UN. All right. I will see you next time. Bye.